Roger Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the Friday Roundtable. I'm joined as I am each and every Friday by Sean Spear, the editor in charge at The Hub. Sean, how do we find you on the 24th of November, Black Friday? Are you doing some early Christmas shopping? <laughs> no, I'm staying clear of uh, the, the shopping malls, but some listeners may know that my family and I spent a a lot of our time in New York City, where my wife uh, uh, works as a lawyer. So we're here, celebrated uh, a version of Thanksgiving yesterday. Uh, we have my parents visiting from Thunder Bay, which means we were no longer on man-on-man defense with the kids. We're able to, to double up. Uh, so that, that's been great. Uh, and of course, tracking a lot of big developments uh, in Canada and around the world this week. Uh, we're speaking at 11.30 a.m., we have the beginning of this hostage exchange between Israel and Hamas. Um, so, yeah, uh, lots going on, but trying to stay clear of, of, of the shopping malls. I, I, they're not a sponsor. I wish they were. They're not. If they're listening, Amazon is your friend today. <laughs> you can do all <laughs> kinds. Look, it's the 24th. A month from now, it's Christmas. Think ahead. Click. Spend. <laughs> It's good for the economy. Come on. And Amazon, if you are listening, this podcast, you know, would love, would love a sponsor. Email us. Come on. Yes. Um, <laughs> but look, let's, uh, let's dive in here. And I want to go in a slightly different uh, direction with you, Sean, to this week. Cause I've been, you know, thinking a little bit about the last seven days or so, um, not in Canada, but what's happening internationally. We've seen a few big populist uh, victories. We have uh, Millet, the, I don't know what he's called, a narco-capitalist who has won in Argentina, a surprise kind of shock victory there in the runoff. He was expected to lose. And then another shock out of Europe, Gertz Wilders, the controversial, um, you know, uh, right-wing politician built a career on kind of anti-immigration, anti-EU policy and rhetoric. Looks like he will be the prime minister of the Netherlands, uh, having to form a coalition government, but nonetheless, a major breakthrough. This all wasn't supposed to happen, Sean. We were being told, you know, as recently as a year ago that, you know, Brexit, Trump, uh, maybe the failure of Marie Le Pen in France to get a breakthrough against Macron, that populism was on the defense, the, the uh, something had happened, uh, the antigens that were in the body politic had been purged by COVID. What do you think's going on here? Um, is populism back? And if so, what does that mean? Yeah, and I would just add uh, to your list of proof points uh, the the riots and violence we've seen in recent days in, in Ireland, um, uh, which I think are you know broadly part of this set of developments around the world. Tyler Cowan, you know, a friend of the podcast, someone you've had speak in Toronto, someone we've had on the, the on Hub Dialogues, uh, wrote this morning, I think only partly in jest, since they keep winning elections or at least placing well. Should we still keep calling them far right, or should we start calling them the deep center? Um, which, which you know, it does speak, I think, to um, 
the extent to which we can't understand these individual instances in isolation, they do seem to be part of a broader set of developments and developments that you follow pretty closely, Rudyard. So let me put it to you. What, to, you, you know, we're against monocausal explanations at the hub. We're in favor of, of nuance. Um, but if you had to identify some of the factors that, um, that string through these dis different cases, what do you think they may be? The economic backdrop. I mean, not to, again, to be a, a kind of Marxist in my analysis here that, you know, all that matters is the relationship to the means of production. But look, inflation has had a big effect, I think, across the Western world. I think people have felt their purchasing power decline. Yes, wages are up, but I don't think people feel like they've caught up. Um, and I think layer on top of that, especially in Europe, uh, continuing mass migration, you know, a lot of migration out of Africa, out of the Middle East, um, that issue, you know, is not going away. Um, so I think some of the things that that were responsible for the original kind of emergence of populism, you know, in the teens, uh, what feels like almost a decade ago, those structural factors are still there. I mean, the great financial crisis was the reverberating economic event of that decade. Uh, I think COVID and inflation are the reverberating economic event of this decade. And again, migration, it's happening. It's constant. This is a multi-decade phenomenon now, if anything, that's intensifying. So I don't know, Sean, um, not monocausal, um, but I do sense big forces here. And I'm not, this is maybe where to come back to you on. I'm not so sure what the counter argument is that one puts up against these populist uh, forces and parties. Uh, it's hard to see how you diffuse these two big things that are on people's minds, you know, migration and acute economic uncertainty. We, we saw that play out uh, earlier this month at the Monk debates, didn't we, Roger? Where George Will and Jacob Rees-Mogg, two highly capable debaters uh, responsible for making the case in favor of liberal democratic capitalism against, um, you know, what amounted to populist critiques were roundly defeated. Um, you know, there was a sense, as I wrote for The Hub last week, that uh, Will and Rees Mog sounded almost kind of Trumpless, like they hadn't, like they were still living in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of history and all the rest. And there was very little introspection or self-reflection about the the two major challenges that you describe. And I, you know, I happen to be a, a smaller liberal. I happen to be someone who believes broadly in the globalization project. Um, but it seems to me until its proponents aren't prepared to um, address some of the major failures over the past you know, decade or longer, um, the populists are going to remain on the march. Um, you know, let me put a proposition to you that I find somewhat compelling way to think about these questions. The Harvard economist Danny Roderick um, talked about what he called a trilemma. You know, you can have more or less democratic representation, you can have more or less globalization, uh, and you can have more or less 
um, uh, migration, but you can only have two of the three. And I think what we've tried to have for the past two decades is to subordinate um, local or national democracy in favor of some of these bigger um, um, economic and, and migra migratory trends. And I think in a way, what we're seeing is, is democracy come roaring back. And the challenge, of course, is we may just not like uh, what we find. You know, does that resonate with you? And how, how do you think we think through some of these issues? Yeah, look, I think that's not a bad theory, but I, I think we also have to think about effects. I think we have to be honest with ourselves that populists in power have been lousy at governing. And, you know, again, there's been a lot of chest thumping. I see it in my social feeds and elsewhere around Mille's victory in Argentina. Look how he's given it to the libtards, you know, it kind of, you know, I mean, this guy could be, could be like clinically insane <laughs> based on what, you know, what you see of him on Twitter and, you know, in his campaign rallies and elsewhere. And yet people celebrate this as a moment of victory for the right. It's only a victory for the right. It's only a victory for, you know, individual liberty and the cause of human freedom if that is articulated in a in an effective governing agenda that achieves those outcomes and goals. Um, you know, Trump's entire presidency was marred with, you know, chaos, maladministration, misadministration. It was a a governing disaster. I mean, you could like Trump in terms of his ideology or his views, but any objective assessment of the effectiveness of his ability and the ability of his movement to render good government. Um, look, I think highly skeptical. You're certainly not going to convince me of that case. So Sean, I don't know what the, I don't know what the right or what conservative thinking people should do here. I mean, we're, we're all kind of entranced by the energy of populism, by the, by its ability now increasingly to win. Like that's what matters. Seizing the machinery of government. Here I go again, sounding like a Marxist. <laughs> um, that's what matters. That's how you get to do what you want to do. But what comes out the other end, the proverbial sausage factory and the populist, you know, hot dog stand doesn't look too appetizing. Yeah. Yeah, you and I talked this week um, a bit about this, Roger, that um, part of the conservative worldview uh, is, a, to a certain extent, a, a kind of inherent institutionalism, right? A commitment to the ideas and institutions and values that have evolved over time and contributed to our success as a, as a society. And you know, the biggest concern with some of these movements and Donald Trump, Donald Trump in a way personifies it is that they are inherently anti-institutionalists. They don't want to sustain and strengthen and protect these institutions. They want to break them. And there's a lot of political fecundity in that message of breaking things. Um, but it is in, at its core unresponsive to the issues that we talked about at the outset. Um, and so it seems to me uh, 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 the proper response is to acknowledge um, these sentiments and, 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 and legitimate concerns within the populace, um, but 
uh, to meet them with meaningful, substantive ideas, not with um, well, Sean. You know, yeah, but just just to push back, it's not just about ideas. It's about competency. It's about the ability to govern, to run big things, to do things, and we may you know, delights, for instance, in, you know, the Trudeau government twisting in the wind, its inability to seemingly organize its way out of a paper bag. But what if that's more structural than we realize? What if, you know, the, uh, the effects of the Trudeau government or the lack of effects aren't so much to do with ideology as they are to do with, you know, something we talk a lot about at the hub state capacity. So who, so then on the right, not only do you have a government potentially here in Canada that could could inherit a weak state, an administrative state that is crumbling in certain ways, but then it brings with it an ideology that is antithetical to that very apparatus. Like to me, that that's risky. That's setting you up for some serious challenges. Yeah, let me turn it back to you. That's a ton of insight. Like, what? what how do you? What's your advice? If, 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 if that prescription is right, and I think there's something to that, that a combination of declining state capacity combined with a, a growing trend within conservatism broadly that seems unconcerned about the, the, the kind of basics of, of governance, um, go, go on a bit about that. What, what do you think the consequences are? And well, how do you think, mitigate them, I guess, is more, more important. Well, I think first you know, wanting to tear everything down to the studs is, you know, might feel good, might be a great campaign slogan, but it's not going to work when you're in power. So, I mean, conservatism at the end of the day has to be about conserving. So I think you have to approach government with an attitude of, well, what should, in fact, in the act of preservation be enhanced? And you can make some interesting ideological distinctions. Certainly you could do that in Canada about what aspects of the federal government are essential and what aren't. And I think we would agree as kind of right-thinking people that, for example, the entire national security apparatus of the current federal government uh, is, which are inherently aspects of federal jurisdiction, core responsibilities have been neglected and allowed to, allowed to decay. So conserving that, preserving that, rebuilding it could be part of an agenda, but that is working within the institutions, the structures of state, of parliament, of of all these institutional things that conservatives seem utterly allergic to. Um, so, no, it really worries me. It worries me that, you know, we're not thinking through yet what is the parts that we want to conserve and preserve. We're not using language and fashioning ideas that will be based on rebuilding elements of state capacity and understanding that we need state capacity. That is a non-ideological uh, statement. It's like you need oxygen, you need calories, you need sunlight, you need state capacity. Yeah. Let me say two things in response. I, I apologize in advance to listeners if, if, if this conversation is trending in a kind of abstract direction, but I think it is a pretty fundamental one and an interesting one and one that I think is, is core to the project of the hub. I, I'd say, as I said, I'd say two things in response. First, a few months ago, I had a, a podcast interview with uh, Michael Bonner, who incidentally will be running uh, in tomorrow's Saturday newsletter, uh, a long form essay called What's the Matter with Russia? Um, but in my conversation with him, 
he distinguished between uh, conservatism and then the kind of nihilism that you're talking about and what he called reconstructionism. And, you know, there may be a case that what we increasingly need is not a conservatism that is merely about defending longstanding institutions and not one that just wants to tear them all down, but a reconstructionist vision that says, you know, we need to, we need to build on what works, discard what doesn't work, and kind of bring our governing institutions and state capacity into the 21st century. And maybe there's a kind of line of thinking there um, that uh, that conservative politicians can grab onto. The second thing I'd say that just because you talked a bit about the tendency on the part of conservatives to be so predisposed to a kind of limited government conception that they know what they don't think the government should do, but they don't necessarily have an affirmative view about what the government should do. And one thing I've long thought is actually, if you're a limited government conservative, you have to have a much clearer sense of what government should do and not do than a progressive, because a progressive thinks, of course, that the government should, that the answer is always more government, right? Um, if you see injustice, if you see a market failure, if you see inequality, if you see any number of issues. So in a way, your framework for making those judgments doesn't have to be as sophisticated. But precisely if you want to make judgments about what government should do and not do, you don't just need to know what government shouldn't do. You have to have an affirmative view on what government should do and how it can do it well. And I agree that that second piece of the puzzle is something that is missing in some conservative circles. And you know something that we'll need to increasingly see out of Pierre Polyev, who's done an excellent job critiquing the, the failures of government overreach on the part of the Trudeau government, but is only beginning to articulate what his affirmative view of, of governing is. What, how do we exercise the levers of power um, to represent Canadian interests abroad? How do we use the levers and tools of economic policy to increase economic growth and, and, and higher levels of GDP per capita? How do we, in effect, um, improve the integration and settlement uh, for immigrants in the country so we avoid some of the issues that we were talking about emerging in other parts of the world. Increasingly, what we need is a kind of state capacity conservatism, or what Tyler Cowen has described as state capacity libertarianism. And I, I do think that that ultimately is the antidote to a lot of these trends that we're seeing around the world, particularly on the populist right. Well, beautifully said. And I just wish that that sophistication wasn't any way part of, you know, the discourse that I see amongst, you know, conservatives on social media, giving each other you know, high fives and, you know, chest bumps for melee or, you know, the latest, you know, populist victory. Um, so look, we'll continue to write and debate and think more about this, but yeah, I think conservatives need to like, kind of grow up. You know, if you're going to govern, you got to grow up. Um, you got to assume responsibility and you have to understand, you have to make some declaratory statements about what you are there to conserve and preserve. And that requires embracing elements, yes, of the big, bad, dreaded state. Because the state at the end of the day is the guarantor of so much of everything that we rely on, our freedoms, our abilities to interact with each other as as uh, you know, rights-bearing agents to transact, to have contracts and responsibilities and obligations um, upheld and enforced. There's so much that we need in terms of the state, but it's understanding what parts of the state 
maybe we can do without. Absolutely. The Department of Canadian Heritage, oops, did I just say that? Might be <laughs> one of those things. Uh, the CBC, oh, the list is long. So we can come up with that list, but I just don't feel like we're doing this thinking. I just feel like the movement right now is just dining out on, you know, Twitter dopamine hits of Melee's latest, you know, outrages uh, against the libtards. Come on, let's be a little more sophisticated than that. Let's take a break. When we're back on the other side, talking about state capacity, we had a fall financial fiscal statement out. What have we learned? A few key little nuggets we just want to put on the radar for your attention could tell something about the direction, the drift of the Trudeau government as we head towards uh, the parliamentary recess and year end. Back right after this break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca you are listening to the hub roundtable i'm rudyard griffiths the executive director of the hub i'm joined by sean spear our editor at large well sean we covered it a lot this week at the hub the fall economic statement um whole bunch in there to reflect on but let's pull out just some of the the oddities in in the statement and, and or the odd gem or two and and, and let me begin there because you know it's easy always to criticize but there was one particular aspect of this statement that you wrote about in the hub that you actually thought was a kind of neat policy idea that could unite across the political divide canadians around a pretty important issue what was it? yeah yeah um uh Presently, the paternity and maternity benefits regime uh, in Canada distinguishes between biological parents and adoptive parents. So biological parents can get up to 52 weeks of um, paid leave, and adoptive parents can only get up to about 35. And it's long been um, a, a priority for different organizations that represent the interests of adoptive parents to call for broadly similar treatment. Um, not because, of course, adoptive parents are going through the physical trauma of, of childbirth, but because there are unique particularities of um, bringing a child into a non-biological home. And the Trudeau government, to its credit, finally responded to those calls, which date back, Rudyard, gosh, um, to when I was in Ottawa. And I'm glad that they did. It's, a, it's an issue that speaks to um, a lot of conservatives who, of course, want to uh, elevate the case for adoption relative to uh, other family planning alternatives, um, and increasingly on, on the, amongst progressives, particularly gays and lesbian couples who, um, who you know, now with the, the right to, to be married, um, strongly, um, not just entrenched in the Constitution, but also in our social norms themselves want to 
um, start families. And so I, I think this is a, a positive development that, as you say, cuts across the ideological divide, cuts across you know, a lot of different normative assumptions, but ultimately ends up in the same place, which is it's, it's all things being equal, it's good uh, for government policy to support families uh, and, uh, and support uh, uh, families getting started. Excellent. So let's <laughs> do the bad and then we'll, we'll end off with the ugly. So the bad significant increase in response to lobbying by the media industry of the, uh, basically the payroll credit that journalism organizations get in Canada, not broadcasters. So you got to kind of be in print or other tra more traditional journalism where you get to claim uh, now for the last five years, up to this point, 25% of any journalist's salary on your payroll up to $55,000. Well, that was boosted to you can now claim after this statement. In fact, it's retroactive, I believe, back to the beginning of 2023, you can claim 35% of up to $85,000 in salary. So what this does, Sean, is it takes us another step closer to, you know, a, a significant portion section of the media, at least the print media, the more traditional aspects of mainstream media, being government funded in, you know, uh, if Bill C-18 were in effect and Google were to comply, we would be over the 50% mark now because you've bumped up this payroll subsidy to 35 and it was anticipated that the Google meta kind of C-18 online news act media bailout would have added another 25%. Meta's not part of that, but Google would be. So you're over 50% in one way or another government funding journalism in Canada. I think this really, I don't know, to me, it's t it's a tough issue. I uh, wonder what you think about it and what you think the particular maybe dangers are here. What is the the bad in this policy outcome? Well, we, we've, we've written extensively at the hub about um, the inherent challenges, both real and perceived, uh, about a growing share of the Canadian media relying on public subsidies to sustain themselves. I mean, at this point, think about it, maybe the, the way to think about it is to consider the alternative. If tomorrow these subsidies were eliminated um, because of a political decision by an incoming polyev government, what would be the cost and consequences to the industry? It would be pretty fundamental. And if you accept that, then it gives you a sense of the extent to which either consciously or subconsciously, um, these public subsidies have to have an effect on the people who are working in these organizations. And so I think in a lot of ways, it, it's, it's the trust and credibility dynamic um, that represents the big, biggest risk. But I want to put something to you, Rudyard. Connect the dots for a minute, because you mentioned C-18, the Online News Act, uh, which, of course, is still not yet in effect. We're waiting to hear uh, whether Google intends to comply with the act after a series of regulatory changes made by the government in the name of bringing Google on board. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this announcement in the fall economic statement that proactively the government is increasing its own subsidy programs. Do you think there's a connection between the two? Is the government in effect planning for or preparing for um, Google to exit the market? And what would the consequences of that be for the industry? 
Yeah, you don't know whether maybe this is a tell, a sign that negotiations with Google are not proceeding as planned and Google could well be exiting news. And this could happen literally in the next couple of weeks because they've got a, I think somewhere in mid-December, there's a deadline that kicks in and they probably wouldn't want to turn news off overnight. They'd want to kind of throttle all of us news junkies off the news tab on Google. I don't know. Are we going to be on DuckDuckGo or something soon, Sean? That's <laughs> possible. Um, so it could be that. Um, it could also be that this fund was really becoming undersubscribed. Uh, so again, people will acknowledge here, I'm not always a ranked partisan. Partly, this isn't necessarily bad public policy to the extent to which the subsidy over half of the funds were going unused each year, if you believe that these funds ever should be spent in this way, because the number of organizations which had this status with the government were themselves declining, disappearing into the news desert. <laughs> it's growing in various parts of this country. And along with them, you know, the headcount of journalists who could be, in a sense, subsidized through the program were declining too. That at least was the case of the media lobby, and they and they, you know, they got what they want. The government increased this twenty-five to thirty-five percent of uh, salary up to eighty-five k a year, which is not in, not not an insignificant amount of cash. Could cost you know up well over a hundred million dollars over the next kind of few years. So all of this though does come down to Google, Sean. If Google leaves in the next few weeks. Um, that could see web traffic. A lot of these big uh, media platforms like Post Media and The Star decline by upwards of 50%. And their business model, unlike, thankfully, at The Hub, we're not, you know, forced to chase, you know, clicks. Because what these big outfits do is they sell those clicks. They bundle a thousand clicks together and guess what? You get five bucks for every thousand clicks that you can bundle together on, you know, some video or pop-up piece of content, you know, uh, that you have on your website. And that's basically their business model. And Google is a huge part of that in terms of sending traffic to them through search, through news. And if that goes away, I think a lot of those businesses are going to go away. But let's Sean, I'm just conscious of our time. Let's go to the, we promised the ugly out of the financial statement. And, and here maybe, you know, I'll surprise you, but it, you feel free to push back. You know, the, the hub to its credit gave the government a bit of kudos here that the deficit wasn't as big as some predicted it was. But where I think the ugly is in this statement was just some really uh, kind of Goldilocks type forecasting for the next few years where not only is economic growth probably more rosy in terms of an outlook than I think it deserves to be, but they also conveniently uh, assume that inflation miraculously solves itself, that higher bond yields are in fact just a temporary thing and don't really have to do with the high levels of government debt and indebtedness, not just in Canada, but around the world. And then, of course, they extrapolate lower borrowing costs out of, uh, you know, the, in a sense, the permanent decline and disappearance of inflation. So to me, Sean, all this seems like, you know, landing a, a kind of triple backflip on the, uh, you know, the head of a 
a Mountie Stetson. Um, <laughs> what's the likelihood of this? I mean, you're the guy at the hub who thinks about economics and numbers. And, I, and it, if you agree with me that this is like three-dimensional chess here, where you got to get every single move right, why do governments always get away with that when it comes to these types of statements? Why are they always allowed to predict the world exactly as they want it and maybe not the way we usually receive the world, which is the way it is? Uh, well, that's a metaphysical question, Rudyard. <laughs> We're back to <laughs> metaphysics. But you're precisely right. Not only does the government have embedded into its fiscal projection some of the rosy assumptions that you just outlined, it also assumes that there's that spending remains constant. Uh, and so, you know, in the next few years, uh, we'll have a series of budgets, we'll have new fall economic statements all leading into the 2025 federal election campaign that is going to put significant spending pressure on the government's already deteriorated fiscal projections, then, you know, what's the old adage, I have something to sell you. Um, and this point can't be emphasized enough, Roger. Although the deficit improves in this year relative to what the government projected in March, over the subsequent four years, it deteriorates something like $35 billion uh, cumulatively. And so this is a, it can't be, I don't think this can be overstated. This is a, a fiscal track that's moving in the wrong direction. Um, and I think that there are, as you say, uh, a ton of downside risks uh, in terms of some of these economic assumptions not materializing. But more importantly, I think the biggest threat to the government's fiscal track is the government itself. Um, we're going to see a ton of new spending come March, uh, the 2024 budget, as the government tries to navigate its difficult political position. Uh, I think come then we're going to see um, that these numbers are, are, are even worse than they were this week. And why that somehow failed to um, go without a lot of recognition in the media besides the hub, um, you know, as I say, that's, I think, a matter of metaphysics <laughs> or incentives, maybe. Yeah, no. And it's just the way the press, uh, here I am going on about the mainstream media, but just the way the press kind of just announces, well, you know, the deficit's not as bad as we thought and all oh, the projections look just terrific going forward and we're going to be back to no deficits by, I don't know, some ridiculous year like 2048 or something. <laughs> Probably uh, in a senior senior's home with a drool cup uh, attached at that point. So I'm not going to care, but I just, I don't know, just, uh, it, it is like how many angels are dancing on the head of a, a pin. But I want to end by just urging uh listeners to check out my uh, conversation with David from this week. So we did something a little bit different instead of Sean's usual excellent interview with David. Uh, I had the opportunity to host him in Toronto for a live one hour discussion. A whole bunch of our hub fellows showed up to uh, take in uh, dinner and David's talk. It was a real pleasure to meet all of you. And it's part of our ongoing commitment to our hub fellows. You can become a fellow at Together to kind of share in the fellowship of the hubs. So you can grab that podcast conversation right now in the same podcast feed. Thank you again for listening to the Hub Friday Roundtable. And remember, 
It's Black Friday. Get out there, start clicking. I'm on Amazon already today. I've got a few stocking stuffers taken care of. Not very uh, romantic, albeit, but uh, it's a great way to buy for the misses. <laughs> Have a terrific weekend, everybody. We'll do this again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.